Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. South of Opakala, along the straight gray strip of 226, between the Guns sign and Missituckney, stretches the marsh, old as time. Once it was an ocean, home to fish and the sliding shadows of sharks. Then the ocean fell away, and the sharks left their fierce teeth behind. Rain turned the salt lakes to fresh, ran creeks across the land, seeped down through the lime rock, cut and filled great caverns underground. Grasses, brush, trees, and vines grew up and steamed in the Florida sun. Camels grazed in the grasslands, mastodons splashed in the shallow lakes. Millennia melted away, and children playing in the snaky scrub, slapping mosquitoes on their damp faces, found the ancient bones and told stories of giants in the marsh. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm talking to Elizabeth McCullough, author of Dreaming the Marsh, an environmental fable about a giant sinkhole in Florida that swallows a large lake, parts of a highway, and a large swath of land slated for development. Unerasable writing appears in the town center, and a local coffee shop owner seems to know something about what's happening. The rest of the characters grapple with their lives, their power struggles, their jobs, and their values as the land around their town changes irreversibly. Hi, Elizabeth. Thanks for joining me today. Galit, I'm so happy to be here and to meet you. So... The story starts with an ancient cypress tree and a farmer who swears that if his children harvest it, they'll lose the land. What happens? Why do they sell it, despite the warning? They sell it because there's good money to be made. And, of course, the warning from their grandfather or their ancestor um, doesn't doesn't resonate through the ages to them. And of course, it's a warning about something magical, and they don't believe in magic. So the marsh itself, next to this tree, is the most important character in the book. What do we know about it? Well, the marsh is a place that is actually based on a real place called Payne's Prairie, south of Gainesville, Florida, where I live. It's a place that is only interesting to people who enjoy really rather boring landscape. Lots of weeds, cypress trees, some ponds, a lot of alligators, lots of beautiful grasses, but it's flat the way Florida is flat. The sky above the marsh is spectacular because Florida skies are spectacular. Sometimes if you look in four directions, you'll see four different skies. 
but our landscapes are not dramatic the way the West is or the way the great cityscapes like Chicago are. It's something you grow to love. And um, I moved to Gainesville in 1980, and Payne's Prairie is a favorite place. We go there, we walk, we watch the alligators um, in their own habitat. We visit them in their home. And um, I fell in love with it as I fell in love with Florida when I moved down here in 1975. And there's something magical about Payne's Prairie. One of the magical things that is true is that every once in a while, the prairie goes from being a marsh to being a navigable lake. And in fact, at the end of the 19th century, um, they ran vacations, uh, what do you call them, excursion boats across the lake. Um, and then all of a sudden, the lake dries up, the sinkhole opens, and the lake disappears. And that has happened um, twice since 1980, not navigable, although you could take a kayak, but the water has pooled for a couple of years. It's flooded the highway and it takes a couple of years to dry up again. And it's, it's spectacular. I love that. That is so interesting. So two questions. First of all, how far away from the alligators are you when you're watching them in their habitat? And secondly, uh, so is the was the marsh the inspiration for this book? Yes, we and it's actually called The Prairie, but it was the inspiration for the book. Although the other piece that was, I was walking in the neighborhood and I saw a house raised on stilts, which is not uncommon. And I suddenly pictured a sinkhole opening underneath it and swallowing it up. And all of my novels start with a sudden visual image that comes from, I don't know, the muses or somebody. It just comes. And then I get curious and start developing them. Um, there was something I was going to say, but of course I forgot. That doesn't matter. The alligators. The alligators. Oh, yes. Well, idiots keep go very close so that my 15 year old son came home one day and told me mom you wouldn't believe it you can walk out on the dike and you can walk right up and touch them <gasps> so yes so there's idiots and then there's my beloved husband who is a camera freak and he um the alligators on a sunny afternoon will come out you walk on the dike and the alligators will come out and sun on the dike, and anybody with sense keeps 20, 30 feet away. But people with cameras, um, like my beloved husband, sometimes go remarkably close. Hmm. But yes, you're right. It, it's their house. It's not your house. So one of the first people we meet is Tyler, the yes. geologist, and he's yes. cycling to work. What's his story? Tyler is a man, uh, a very gifted geologist who grew up in the town I call Opakulla, which is based on Gainesville. And he went up north to all the, you know, all the um, elite schools. I think he went to Harvard, if I remember, and he went to Michigan and he got his doctorate, but he didn't like it up there. And he came back to Gainesville to study sinkholes. And it's a very good place to study sinkholes. We have a lot of sinkholes. In fact, 
just a couple of months ago, a huge sinkhole opened and swallowed, um, well, pretty much closed a neighborhood. I'm not sure of the details. And if I had been a really cold-hearted person, I would have used that news, because it was big news, to promote my book. But since a number of people's homes were destroyed, I decided that wasn't a kind thing to do, and I refrained. <laughs> but um, so Tyler comes back. He is a he is a man I love. He's a total nerd. He's a science nerd. He's um, never really had much in his life besides the absolute fascination with nature and geology and sinkholes. And he loves the earth he st because he knows it's dying. He is not an environmental optimist. Um, he has never really been in love until he meets Carol and he falls madly in love. But Tell us a little about Carol. About Carol. Carol is a harried single mother of two. She's a secretary in the geology department. And she is, um, I was myself a young single mother, and there's bits of me in Carol. Um, but Carol is in love with somebody else who treated her very badly. And she becomes involved with Tyler, but the fire isn't there. And that's sort of all I want to say about one, one of the tensions in the book is will Carol stay with Tyler or go off back to Randall? And so, yeah. So Tyler goes to Vernell's breakfast bar. What's yes. going on? What's going okay. on there? Vernell is perhaps my favorite character. Because when I first submitted this book to my publisher, um, all the only magic in the book was some mysterious writing that appeared on a wall. And she said to me, she said, magic is fine, but it has to fulfill, it has to fill the book. It can't be just one thing. And suddenly Vernell, who was... Um, a middle-aged black woman who ran a coffee shop. Vernell grew in my mind, and she is a woman who's descended from the ancient Patano Indians, one of the earliest groups of people in, in Florida. And her ancestors speak to her, and she has magical gifts. She understands what's going on when the sinkhole begins to swallow the marsh. And um, magical things happen in her cafe. And she's ageless. Um, I don't know how old she is. Um, but she wears these wonderful, long, bright caftans. And that's the only thing she has in common with me. I, all through the hot season, which is about eight months a year, I wear nothing but bright caftans. Other than that, Vernell is far larger and more magnificent than I could ever hope to be. I love this woman. But the other mm. thing I love about her is she's also a very ordinary woman. She she squabbles with her preacher and she was involved in the integration of the schools. 
She worries about her bright nephew who's in trouble with school. She has a real life as well as these mysterious magical gifts. So I love that woman. Why has the land been sold? Why has the marshland been sold for development? Because this is Florida, darling. That's what we do in Florida. (laughs) We, you know, we drained the Everglades. I mean, we are, I don't know, you know, I've, I sort of, I came to Florida when I was about 26. And so I sort of grew up in Florida. You know, I became an adult in Florida. I don't know, in a funny way, I don't know that much about the rest of the country. But honestly, I think we're as bad as anyone when it comes to destroying the earth. We build. Mm. That's what we do. And we build horrors and monstrosities and gated communities. Oh, don't get me started. (laughs) Is is Dreaming the Marsh a distinctly Floridian story? Um. It is in its specifics because sinkholes, I know they have them elsewhere, but we're kind of famous for sinkholes. Um, and the, the nature of the marsh, which we call a prairie, but it's what anybody else would call a marsh, is very Floridian. I guess um, the Okefenokee up in Georgia is similar uh, in southern Georgia, but Yeah, it's a Florida story. And also there's a certain tension in the book between Florida natives and the Yankees who come down and tell them how they ought to be doing things. Um, That's a very Floridian thing because, um, you know, people from outside the South are really honestly think that Southerners don't know what they're doing, which is, well, I won't use a rude word, although... I suppose you could edit it out. But anyway, um, (laughs) uh, Florida, I am not myself a Florida native, but Florida has in 20, in 45 years become my home. And um, I, I don't presume to think I know more than the people who have built this state. And I, when I say built, the people who, who have lived here all their lives and have seen mm. it destroyed, you know, by people like me. So, hmm. so I guess it's a distinctly Florida story. But I suspect there are many parts of the country in which outsiders come in and think they know so much. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about Mary Beth Coggins and her role in the Mary town? Mary Beth Coggins is also very dear to me, and she appears in two of my other books, which have not yet been published. Um, Mary Beth is a Florida native, uh, many generations back, and she is a hardware store owner. She owns a hardware store with her husband, Monroe. And that is based on a hardware store, George's, which has now closed in Gainesville. Um, Mary Beth, watching what was happening in her town, watching the developers come, watching the county and city commissions always compromise on development so that, you know, the developers would ask for a thousand acres and they would settle on 500 acres and destroy that. And it just kept 
developing and developing and developing. And she finally decided to run for the commission, the city county commission. And she doesn't like her work on the commission, but she's determined to hold, hold back the forces of what's called progress. And her, her, I think it's called a bete noir, her, her enemy on the commission, and she hates to have an enemy, is Randall, the man that uh, Carol has been involved with in the past. And he's from, he's from New York, I think. I know he's from up north. And he's a classical music um, disc jockey. He hates that term, but that's what I call him. And he knows it all. He has all kinds of great ideas about developing Opakulla into a more sophisticated place that suits him. And Carol is always butting heads with Randall. Is, is Randall a good guy at heart? You know, we're all good guys at heart, um, I believe. And in fact, I think most of us are doing the best we can. Randall is someone with a very thin and glossy shell covering huge amounts of insecurity. Um, he does, I'd say the place in which he is most sincere and able to be himself is in listening to classical music of which he has a huge mastery. And um, he really, he has to close his eyes when he listens to classical music because he doesn't want anybody to see him naked. Um, but he's he's terribly he's he's very concerned with impressing people. With he has nothing but the finest silk ties, and he he's just very insecure, and so he has this ridiculous shell of arrogance and sophistication. And he's a funny, he's a funny um, combination with Carol, who is a very down-home sort of, well, harried single mother. Um, but he, you know, he always wants to be sure he has the finest wines and the finest thises and the finest thats. And he's also a bit of a horn dog, if you know that expression. You know, if, if, if a woman is available, he would like to have his chance with the woman. Mm-hmm. So he screws um, around. What can I say? Yeah, that's how he seemed. Yeah. Um, so you say this sinkholes really do happen around you. Oh, my um, God. Yeah. It, it was unclear to me the, the time, the timing for it. Was that typical? How long it took for, for it all to happen in the book? Yes. You know, they do... Um, it seems to me, I know the book takes a year, lasts for a year. It seems to me the sinkhole, it's been a while, took about six months to complete eating the interstate and the marsh. I don't think, we've never had a sinkhole that big. I mean, that this is, is part of the magic. But um, yes, what will happen is a sinkhole will start and it will eat a car or something. And they, they come out and put warning cones around it. And then a couple of days later, it collapses some more. And a few, a couple of, a week later, it collapses some more. That's what's been happening with this one in the neighborhood near me. Um, 
they don't usually get as big as that one has gotten. Um, but I did base it in part on a, an, a, an ancient sinkhole in Gainesville called the Devil's Mill Hopper. And um, that is, oh gosh, I don't know how many thousands of years it opened up, but it's big enough that it has a small forest at the bottom and it's quite a wonderful place. Um, so yes, it, 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 a sinkhole grows in fits and starts and nobody knows when it's going to end, <laughs> but they've never eaten. They have certainly eaten large roads, you know, and they've had to close the road until they could stabilize. I don't know what they have to do, the engineering. It has certainly swallowed houses. It has certainly swallowed the most recent I remember was a Cadillac, and I'm sure the people were not thrilled. <laughs> uh, you've referred to the book as an environmental fable. Have you always wanted to write a novel about the way humanity is treating the earth? No, and that's what's odd. Um, that is the first book I wrote. And as I said, it came to me in an image and I thought, well, who would be interested in a, sink, in a sinkhole? Well, a, a geologist would be. And Tyler grew. And then some images came to me. Um, and although, I mean, I am like Tyler, I'm very pessimistic. I don't think we have the political or ethical will to turn around and stop what we're doing. And I do love, I do love the earth. Um, I love all the strange creatures on the earth, but my obsession always has been with what we call social justice, with issues of poverty. That's the work I did as a lawyer. It's the work I've done many, many years as a volunteer with the homeless, you know, people who are living in the woods. And that has been my passion. The environment has, has been, I, I need the woods. I need to be outside, but it hasn't been my, my, uh, what do I want to say, my ethical passion. And I try and be a good, you know, I recycle and I try and, and but I'm, I'm an American. I use up most of the world's resources every time I turn around. Um, so no, I never in a million years would have thought my first novel would be an environmental fable. But I love that book. Mm. I love How? that book. How do you reconcile your disbelief in magic, which you've written about, with the presence of ancient beings and distinct writing on the wall? You know, um, one of the things I've loved about being a writer is I'm not entirely in charge. Wonderful things come to me and I follow them and develop them. And, um, I cannot tell you the thrill it is to see things, to get carried away. I love it. And who would, who would? The magical writing on the wall, which is, I'm quite sure I can recite it, um, deep down and under, up to the sky, shining and thunder, the well runs dry. And that appears on the wall of the new commission building. Well, that just came to me, the whole bloody thing. Gaboom, gaboom. I wasn't trying for it. It was 
early in the weeks that I was thinking about the book, and that came to me. Um, well, who would turn away from that? And then, as I said, Vernell became magic because my publisher, who is the most wonderful editor, God bless her, um, she said, magic can't just be a one little spot. If you're going to have magic, you have to have more magic. And Vernell was transformed. And and there's a scene, the very last scene in the book. I mean, when I think about it, I get goosebumps. It makes me, it makes me tearful and it gives me good goosebumps. And it's, I think it's beautiful and I love it. And so I will definitely follow my muse if my muse will, will lead. And obviously a lot of it is, is labored and figured out and God knows revised. The current novel that my publisher is thinking about is on its 17th draft. So <laughs> I, I don't rush. I wish okay. I could rush. Well, you said you took 30 years through throughout a, a, different per, professional careers, and this is your first published book. Is there, is there any part of being a published author that you love best of all? Oh, my God. Oh, my God, yes. Um, it was... It was 30 years to get published, except for one short story. And I kept on trying, and then things would interrupt. I've had a complicated life. But being published, first of all, I wanted people to read the damn thing. I love my book. But second, it there's a sort, there's a sort of encouragement. And I got up every morning. It was so much easier to plunge in and keep writing. And I... And then I had a team. I had this wonderful publisher slash editor. I had a website de developer who was such a treat. And I had a publicist. And we, you know, I was the only one. Well, my, I'd say my editor is in love with my book. But we had so much fun doing that work. It was so wonderful to have a team. And then what I've loved until the pandemic I was going around to retirement communities, which are easy to find in Florida. And I had a wonderful talk that I gave with a slideshow of Payne's Prairie and that I did. It was my first PowerPoint that I ever did and wonderful photographs, partly from a friend of mine and partly my own. Um, I love giving public, I love talking about this stuff and to to an audience that was interested. Um, and then, as I said, it encourages me to go on writing and it has linked me with other writers. That's something I try to, to do more of. Um, I write book reviews and yes, it's, well, it's validation. I mean, I'm 73. <laughs> I'm 73. I published my book when I was 72 and it's kind of nice. Yeah. To have somebody say, this is worth publishing, and to have other people say, I loved your book. Oh, the other thing I love to do, I just have to tell you, is I love going to book clubs. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. It's a bunch of people who've read your book and they want to talk about it, and they often give you delicious meals and wine. It couldn't be more fun. And, you know, the pandemic sort of put a, a stop to that, but, you know. It will end. Mm, yep, hopefully soon. So what are you working on now? I'm, 
I have a novel that my publisher, I, she does want to publish it, but I'm in the midst of rather difficult revisions. Um, and so I'm struggling with that. I'm at the very early stage. This is the one that's had 17 drafts but <laughs> on my own that I did on my own. Um, but there's some major revision needed and I have a lot of faith in what she tells me, but I'm trying to figure out. It's a book about a, a retired teacher who sees a man at the edge of her property and he's a homeless man. And it's the story of the two of them. And, um, well, I love it the way I love my books. And many, many things happen in that book. And I have to figure out some more organizing principles, according to my publisher. Um, but God, I love writing. I love writing fiction. I. It's hard to say why. I also love writing. I write a, um, on my website, I have two blogs. One is called The Feminist Grandma. It's personal essays. I love writing those. And then I have my book review essays, which I also love writing. So I'm an extremely happy person. How my wonderful. Work. Yeah, Elizabeth, no kidding. It was so lovely talking to you. I also loved your book. It was just charming and beautifully written. Thank and you. I wish you the best of luck on finishing this next one. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host of New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Elizabeth McCullough, author of Dreaming the Marsh. Hope all of you listeners are able to lose yourself in a good book today and tomorrow, too. Happy reading.